Happy Resurrection Sunday. What a day to be in church. Why don't you grab your Bibles out? Hopefully by now they're, they're just automatically falling open to the Book of Romans. We've been in there for some months. So we're going to start there. So if you turn to Romans chapter 8, I want to reflect just on one passage there. We're going to flick over to 1 Peter and do our best to do some justice to this incredible reality of an empty tomb and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's not going to be my words that will get us there. It's the power of the Spirit and His Word accomplishing what He sends it forth to do. So let's pray before we do anything else. Father, what a privilege it is to to join this morning as a part of your body, of your church gathered in this place. And as people gather all across our city and our nation, across the nations on this Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, Lord, I pray that your gospel would be proclaimed with purpose and power. May we never forget the reality of this God who stepped into human history, who died in our place, and who rose again to proclaim and forever declare that you are who you said you are, and that you came to do, that you've accomplished that which you said you would do. Our deliverer, our healer, our king, our Lord, and the one who would save their people from their sins. Father, I pray as we reflect upon the reality of that for us today, as we turn to your scriptures, would you do what you desire to do for the glory of your name. Holy Spirit, come. Open up our ears to hear your voice, and may your word go forth with power. May it bear fruit for the the glory of your name, we pray. King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, many of us would have been following along in the series, but uh, others of us wouldn't. So what I want to do is pick up where we left off in Romans 8, and then we will turn to 1 Peter. And I want to talk about this notion of hope, this notion of hope. Why is it that the resurrection gives us hope? See, hope, hope is like, it's like the fuel in the tank. It's like the oxygen. It's the air that we breathe. We get out of bed in the morning because we have some version or some notion of hope. The question is not, will we hope? It is, in what Will we place our hope? And I want to encourage us, I want to stir our hearts that there's one place and one place alone that we find true and lasting and living and unfailing and indestructible hope. So Romans 8, yep, that was one one amen from the front row. That's okay. I'll take that and we'll move on. Romans 8, we're in this passage. Romans, of course, is Paul proclaiming the good news of the gospel. We've talked about what the centrality of that message is. And then Romans 8 is this incredible passage where Paul is unpacking, well, what does that then begin to look like for us? There's a new way to be human. There's a new way to live. It changes everything 
about us, all that we are and all that we do. He talks about, as he begins, as by way of review, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been set free. We are free. We're called to live free. We're called to be heirs, sons and daughters of the living God. There's a life that is offered in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, uh, 8 verses 18, he says, I consider the sufferings of this present time. They're not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now that's a passage that's worthy of a whole sermon series alone. That is a bold and a big statement that Paul makes. The sufferings around us, they are worth nothing. Not even to be compared with this great glory. He talks about all of creation is waiting with, with eager longing. Subjected to futility. There's this, 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 this yearning and longing in creation itself for the freedom that we will see ultimately in Christ as he makes all things new. And that brings us to verse 24. Verse 23, the end there, he says, um, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions as sons the redemption of our bodies. Who's thankful for a new body? Probably everyone 50 plus is celebrating. Those under 50 don't even raise your hands. You're not included in this survey. But there's, there's this groaning, isn't there? There's this recognition that there's futility around us, including, if we're honest, in our physical bodies. Who's ever... I, I notice each decade there's, there's, there's a new kind of benchmark for, for the frailty of the body and... From time to time, the age I am, who's ever got out of bed before? And just getting out of bed is enough to do some sort of an injury. Anyone had that moment? Yeah. Ugh. Every day. Every day. Okay. Thank you. Well, there's good news for you and for me and for all of us. We groan inwardly. There is that groaning. There's that longing for what he has promised, which includes, praise the Lord, the redemption even of our bodies. There's a new body coming. Verse 24, here it is. For in this hope we were saved. Some translations say, for into the greatness of this hope we have been saved. He goes on, now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what is seen, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not, what know, do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And that brings us to probably the best known passage in Romans 8, possibly the whole book of Romans. And it's a good one for good reason. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I mentioned that last passage because this hope is available to what? Those who can work things out in their own strength? 
That's the opposite of what he says. For those who are caught up in the greatness of his plan, plan that he foreknew, that we're called into, that we're justified through his work on the cross. And if we live in that place, as he's talked about, then we know too we will be glorified. That's the substance and the basis and the foundation of our hope. Quickly come over to 1 Peter. I would suggest to us, and I know we've studied this this book through at uh, different points in time, from cover to cover, but one of the greatest themes of this book is this notion of hope. And he begins his letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us, notice that, It's not something we've worked up. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's caused us. You couldn't avoid this if you tried. We're saved into it. He's caused us to be born again into a living hope. There is a living hope. This is not that we're called to be little hopers or half-hearted hopers. We're not even called to be moderately hopeful hopers. There is an invitation to us this morning, and as Peter identifies very directly, as we reflect and ponder upon the reality of an empty tomb, there is a call and an invitation for us to be a people brimming, overflowing with living hope, a hope that is alive. So let's reflect upon that notion. What is it that Peter and Paul are trying to underline, to reassure, to encourage us into? Well, first of all, it's worth noting that this kind of biblical hope is different than the way in which we would normally use the word. We would use the word hope, wouldn't we, normally to uh, speak about something that had a level of uncertainty. I hope the Raiders win the football match, which they did last night, just putting it out there, the Raiders fans amongst us. But there's, there's a level of uncertainty. It's a wishful expectancy. Now, that is different than biblical hope. Biblical hope is a confident expectation. One, one translation says that biblical hope is a profound certainty. There's no wishful thinking. There is a certainty. There's something that we know. And as both of these passages make clear, this is a hope that's not based upon our wishful thinking. Gee, we really hope that things end up well in the end. The centrality or the undergirding of this hope is not our desire. It's not scientific advance or social progress. It is God himself. This God who's caused us to be born again. This God who has saved us into hope. His his power, his working, his faithfulness, his doing is to bring us into and offer us a living hope. So what, what is it that this hope 
gives us as we ponder this morning upon an empty tomb, the resurrection of Christ. And I only want to give us two thoughts this morning to encourage our hearts. And number one is this. It gives us an assurance of his promise. We can be assured of the faithfulness of his promise, that he is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God, that he does what he said he would do. He's faithful to keep his promises. See, Paul talks about the resurrection, and you can uh, look this one up in your own time, but 1 Corinthians 15 is this wonderful passage as Paul has... uh, has written this letter to the Corinthian church to encourage them. He's talked about the centrality of preaching Christ. But in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I want to underline and assure you or um, expand to you the importance of the resurrection. And he goes on and he says, if Christ is not raised, if that has not happened, then we are to be the most pitied of all people. Like, what is the point of this whole thing? If Christ is still in the grave, you're still in your sin, he says. He's not who he said he was. There's no hope for anything. Tim Keller puts it this way. If Christ is not raised, Christianity is not intellectually credible or existentially satisfying. Comes down to to the empty tomb. If that did not happen, then what have we got? Paul says we've got nothing. But then the flip side of that coin must be true. But if he has been raised, then we all of a sudden have everything. We have a God who's faithful to his word. We have the fullness of his plan that Adam talked about this on Good Friday, Friday night, that he prophesied from the beginning. And not just from the beginning, that was put in motion before he laid the foundation of the world. Not an afterthought, not a coincidence, not a random series of events. The specific fulfillment of the specific promise and purposes of God. A God who proclaimed his plan through the prophets and a God who fulfilled that which he had purposed in his heart and proclaimed that he would do. See, when we recognize and realize that, we have this incredible anchor For our souls. Matthew 24, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, my promises, my truth, the things that I'm saying will never pass away. He's saying there's nothing in the universe more stable, more consistent, and more dependable than His Word. That systems will fail, that our health will fail, that governments will fail, that technology will fail, that our own physical bodies will fail, but the Word of God is the one thing on earth that you can completely trust. It's a steadfast foundation. If that tomb is empty, and I believe with all my heart that it is, then there is an assurance of His promise. There's a sure foundation that we can build our lives upon. We have a foundation. It's wonderful. And so the question often that is worth asking, that I get asked, you probably do as well, is, well, is it possible to have hope? Is it possible to have a foundation 
to have hope, to have purpose, to have meaning without God? And I would answer that question, well, yes, but no. Yes, but no. Yes, we can, but no, we can't. Let me explain what I mean. Here's a quote from a physics teacher and the author of the Young Atheist's Handbook. And, and this is like a, an indication of a life built on another version of hope. And she says this. Just yet, yes, of course, I know that life is ultimately without meaning or purpose. But the trick is not to wake up every morning and feel that way. Just embrace it. Create a sense of meaning by doing something useful with your life. It's good advice. I teach being creative, not in a poncy hipster way, but make a curry, build some bookshelves, write a poem, and if you get really stuck, eat rice and dal. Physically filling yourself with the food you love really does fill the emptiness you may feel inside. Now, I remember reading that, just being, being so struck by that reality and that notion of can I find hope? Is there a foundation without God? The answer is, well, yes, there is. But it's inevitably small, infinitely small, and inevitably fragile. It's small because there's no bigger picture. There's, there's nothing else there. Well, why do I do anything? Well, just to fill my stomach. Now, I love dal. I love, I love a good meal. I do. It's fantastic. I find it very temporarily satisfying. I, I, you know, maybe a week later, maybe a month later, there might be some remnant of that good meal, but... It's, it's inevitably... Why fill your belly with good food? There's, there's nothing in the bigger picture, is it? Well, to keep myself alive. Well, why do you want to be alive? Well, so that I can provide for my... Well, what, why? It's inevitably small. Think, think small. Don't ask any big questions. And it's inevitably fragile, isn't it? The fragility of that kind of hope. The meal that's satisfying one moment might not be the next. And there goes my purpose for living. So I want to encourage us. There is this reality of a hope that's not small and fragile. It's vast and it's great and it's unshakable. There is this reality as we look at the empty tomb of a God who gives us this reality and assurance of an anchor and a foundation that we can live our lives upon. That's number one. The second is this. So it's an assurance of his promise and it's a certainty of his purpose. That his promise never fails and that his purpose will prevail. You see, we see this great paradox, don't we, as we reflect on resurrection morning of the empty tomb. And it is a moment, as we talked about, a fear of wonder, of joy, of thankfulness. And yet, where is it found? What's, what's the context in which that is found? It's against the backdrop of great suffering. A suffering that we've pondered and reflected upon on Good Friday. And I would say, in, in a, a broader sense, that is... The, the incredible reality of the gospel, that we have this hope, and it's a hope that's not found in the absence of suffering and grief and trial and tribulation. In fact, Paul intentionally puts it in the midst of. There's groanings, there's this reality 
Remember a couple of moments with my kids and one of the, the most challenging journeys as a, as a father, um, but in some ways the most special and significant as well, is when you go through those periods where there is significant trial and trauma involved with your kids. And um, every father who's had kids, whether it's been uh, small accidents or significant accidents, you, you know that feeling. Uh, I had this one moment where twice within a week... Two of my girls had to go in for, for tonsil surgery. And it's not a, a major operation in the scheme of things. They both had this um, condition with enlarged tonsils that the doctors have said, look, we need to rectify this circumstance. There's pro- problems with breathing and eating that will eventuate even more, be exacerbated as they grow older. So twice in a week, as it worked out, I was in hospital staying overnight and one of the girls was very good with the whole process and... I got the little the anesthetic needle and away you go. The other girl, and she's got a bit of a history, but it was traumatic. It was completely the opposite scenario. And we, we tried to reason with her. We couldn't even get her into the room. But they eventually had to sort of try and give her some gas just to settle her down enough, calm her down enough to be able to get the needle in to be able... And so through this whole process, I think it was probably more traumatic for me as the father than it was for her as this, this little girl, trying to reassure her, saying, sweetheart, I, I, know it's, I know it's hard. It's a big, long needle. It's not very nice. But th- this, is, this is actually something that is for your good. Like we, we need to walk through this together. And, and I want to assure you that I will be with you every step of the way. In fact, as I said, she did have some trauma associated with her. Uh, some other hospital visits. She was regularly in and out of hospital as a little girl. And uh, I, I used to, I remember regularly, because I'd um, be at home with her and I'd take her to the appointments in those days, I'd just hold her in my arms as if she was fragile and she'd potentially break. I said that to her just recently. I said, oh, there used to be days where I'd, I'd hold you in my arms the entire day and I'd put you in bed at night and just make sure you were still breathing regularly. And she looked at me, she's like, Dad, that sounds really creepy. Which it wasn't at all. Once you get the wrong picture, it was, it was just the genuine love of a father who... There's some trials and there's some stuff and it was, it was horrible and it was heartbreaking. But there was that sense that I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it with you. And you, you look back at those times, don't you? And you're like, you know what? I would never want to go through that and I would never want anybody else to. But I wouldn't trade it for anything either. Walking with this little girl through difficulties and through struggles and trials of being there for her. And, and so there, there is this sense that there is a purpose and a greater purpose 
in the midst of suffering. And I don't want us to misunderstand it. So the, not, the ultimate purpose is not so that we would suffer. That's not why God allows suffering. That's not his intention that, well, suffering is necessary just to teach people. I mean, he, he will use it. He certainly will to build character in us. But the ultimate purpose of suffering is not that we would suffer, but that he would suffer for us. Suffering is central to the salvation story. Without the world of pain and suffering, Christ could not have come and died. And the centerpiece of the story is the cross, the Savior who was beaten, who was bruised, who was bleeding on the cross, taking upon himself the sin and suffering of the world. It's the greatest masterpiece against the backdrop of the greatest evil. The greatest beauty and hope found in the midst of the greatest suffering. And so there is this reality as as we come and we see this assurance and the certainty of his promise that never fails. We also at the same time see the certainty of his purpose that will prevail. Not just in the absence of the stuff, but in the midst of it. He's saying, can't you see how there is the reality of his purposes in the midst of everything? The tomb becomes his greatest triumph. All things we read, and he proclaims in Romans 8. All things. We know all things work together for those who love the Lord, who entrust themselves to his purposes, who were caught up in that reality of his purpose. There's a certainty of his purpose that prevails. The grave is empty. That same power, Scripture proclaims, is at work in my life and in yours. The faithfulness of his promise that never fails and the certainty of his purposes that will prevail. Can we get the worship team back up? We're going to finish with a song this morning. Why don't you just, if you can, put your Bibles aside, just turn your attention to the Lord. And I want to ask us this question. It's the question we asked as we began. So we sit here pondering again the reality the Savior who's come, of the tomb that is empty. The question is simply this, how alive is your hope? Hope's like the air we breathe. It's like the fuel that's in the tank. All of us hope in something. How alive is your hope? Because there's an invitation for us, again, to know this truth and this reality of a living hope. With the chaos of the kids all behind us and the stuff of life surrounding us. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you this morning for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. For us. And we praise you, Lord, that though there is the groanings of life, the present sufferings, 
the trials, the tribulations, the distractions. Lord, that there is a place that you've called us to live. It's a place of incredible hope. There is a hope that can move and motivate us. There's a hope that gives us courage. There's a a foundation that holds us steady when storms of life, the fear, the confusion, the loneliness, the discouragements are raging around us. There's a, a reservoir and an everlasting fountain that we can drink from when life and the journey feels more like a barren wilderness. And so I pray, Lord, this morning that there be an opportunity, even now as we just bring this time to a conclusion, to drink again from that fountain of hope. Lord, may we be a people who are not half-hearted hopers, who are not moderately hopeful hopers, but we're a people who know what it is to to run through life with that living hope. Maybe the wind in our sails. Maybe the the fuel in the tank that just keeps us going towards your purposes, we pray. We ask that in Jesus' name.